everyone. Welcome to the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast, where mistakes are welcome, nothing is off limits, and growth is inevitable. I am Sharissa Wood. I'm Brittany Simon. And we are putting our brains together to bring you the tools you need to elevate your hygiene practice, build amazing team culture, and provide patients with the very best care. Our mission is to help empower and equip every hygienist to practice purposeful, profitable hygiene. We look to guide you on your journey towards career fulfillment by providing support, collaboration, and community to our profession. As two of the top producing hygienists in the country, we know firsthand that these things lead to sustainable and fulfilling practice and the happy side effect of high profitability. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Hygiene Podcast. Today, we have the immense pleasure of having Dr. Tiffany Dudley back with us to talk about obstructive sleep apnea. And we are really excited today to get right down to business. So I'm going to give kind of an overview of Dr. Dudley, what I know of her accomplishments, um, and jump right in. So Dr. Dudley graduated from Michigan State University and the University of Detroit Mercy School of Dentistry. After finishing dental school, she moved to South Florida, where she completed her general practice residency at the Veterans Hospital in Miami. And there she served as chief resident until joining a practice in the Florida Keys. Dr. Dudley is also committed to treating her patient's gum disease and offers minimally invasive laser treatment for gum disease, the LANAP protocol. And Dr. Dudley is the first dentist in Delray Beach to earn the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine Qualified Dental Distinction. In addition, in 2019, Dr. Dudley became an American Board of Dental Sleep Medicine diplomat. Earning diplomat status from the ABDSM is a unique honor that recognizes special competency in dental sleep medicine. And this is why we have you here today, obviously, Dr. Dudley. And thanks so much for joining us again. Our last pod together was on laser-assisted everything, LENAP protocol, LAPIP, laser-assisted surgery. And you are one of the few people I know who is a general dentist who specializes in several things who's actually good at them. You know, it's kind of a jack-of-all-trades thing, but you're actually good at the trades that you are specializing in. So it's really cool um, to watch you in practice every day with our patients at the Splitic Dental Group. And I've had the immense pleasure of working with you the last eight years. So I see you in action all the time. So really, really happy to have you here again. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Of course, of course. So I'm going to give an overview on our topic today. And then I'm going to ask you, obviously, to to do some Q&A and answer the questions that I know we all have as hygienists. So great. So current estimates of obstructive sleep apnea cases in the United States uh, in the adult population range officially between four and nine percent. However, between 70 and 90 percent of adults remain undiagnosed. Repetitive episodes of total or partial collapse of the upper airway during sleep characterizes OSA leading to sleep disruption and decreased oxygen levels or hypoxia. Inflammation, oxidative stress, and increased sympathetic activity precipitated by the sleep fragmentation and hypoxia are some of the mechanisms that link OSA to several medical comorbidities affecting patients' oral and systemic health. A strong association exists between OSA and cardiovascular diseases, including hypertension, heart failure, arrhythmias, and stroke. Some studies also implicate a potential association between OSA and periodontal disease. Inflammatory cytokines such as TNF, alpha, and IL-1 beta and acute phase C-reactive protein are increased in OSA patients and in patients with periodontitis. 
Severe anatomical risk factors are associated with OSA, including a large neck, circumference, small size, and a retruded position of the mandible, or retronathia, and large tongue, tonsillar hypertrophy, class 2 malocclusion, and extension of the soft palate behind the tongue. Snoring, general fatigue, and excessive daytime sleepiness, or EDS, are common symptoms of OSA. Because symptoms such as fatigue and EDS are also common to other chronic diseases, OSA is often not diagnosed as readily as its comorbidities such as diabetes or cardiovascular diseases. Obesity is a major risk factor for OSA. It often leads to enlargement of the soft tissue in the upper airway and the tongue. Ideal screening includes identifying the anatomical risk factors, clinical symptoms that patients experience, and implementing validated screening tools followed by appropriate referral to a physician for further evaluation. Currently, there are several validated OSA screening tools available for health professionals, such as the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which we use at Spodak, uh, Berlin Questionnaire, and Stop Questionnaire, or Stop Bang, I think I've heard it calls, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Each evaluates a different aspect or risk factor for OSA. Perhaps the most widely used tool is the Stop Bang Questionnaire, which takes into account the patient's medical conditions and symptoms. Mal and Patty scoring of the orofarynx or the length of the soft palate is an important part of the assessment of the potential for soft tissue obstruction during intraoral examination, which has been shown to predict both the presence and severity of OSA. Patients at risk for OSA are usually referred by their primary care providers, although some ENTs, cardiologists, and neurologists specialize in seat medicine. A definitive diagnosis is obtained by conducting polysomnography or a sleep study in consultation with a sleep medicine physician. Continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, is the most effective treatment for moderate to severe OSA. The CPAP machine provides a continuous stream of air under high pressure that prevents the upper airway from collapsing. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine recommends full appliances, or OA, for patients who are intolerant of CPAP, which is about 25 to 58%, or those who prefer an alternative treatment option. The OA advances the tongue and the mandible forward, increasing the upper airway diameter and reducing the upper airway collapse. <clears throat> so dental professionals, as we know, have the potential to recognize the signs and symptoms of sleep apnea and refer patients for a medical consultation. Dental hygienists spend the most time with patients and have the potential to provide an appropriate setting to conduct OSA screenings. While the potential for this practice has been previously proposed, no published studies have reported the level of knowledge and attitudes about the importance of identifying OSA among dental hygienists. Practice modifications adopted by busy clinicians require both a positive attitude toward the need and adequate knowledge base in the subject matter to implement and sustain a change. And as we know, our biggest nemesis is time and how to fit this into our um, schedules and kind of sometimes patient patient pushback, kind of like we get when we deliver um, any bad news about the extent of health or disease in a patient's mouth. So we have Dr. Dudley here to talk about a little more in depth and a little more real world experience wise, what this looks like in a clinical setting, how we can evaluate for this issue and how to refer, like what the best tools are, how to refer. So the first question I want to start with Dr. Dudley is, can you tell us about some of the potential side effects of untreated obstructive sleep apnea? Yeah. I mean, I think you covered a lot of the side effects in Um, that kind of brief discussion about what sleep apnea is. The reality right now is that this, the verdict is still out on is sleep apnea the cause of things or is it the result of things? 
So when we look at these things that you mentioned, hypertension, stroke, heart attack, atrial fibrillation is a big one. Um, we're in the in the phase of exploration in the medical realm where we're unsure whether like OSA is the chicken or the egg, so to speak. So if you have sleep apnea, are these systemic medical problems a result of that? Or is it that if you have these medical problems, you're more likely to get sleep apnea? Okay, the biggest one being atrial fibrillation, because there was a recent study a couple of years ago that showed um, they took people just with AFib and not even a complaint. Like you mentioned the Epworth and the, and the sleepiness scale and the stop bang and all that kind of stuff. Like those paper scales are great for identifying someone who could be at risk, but they just don't diagnose. So they took people who were already diagnosed with AFib and it was a clinical study and they did polysomnography, which is an in-lab sleep study on them. And they found that even of that population, people just with AFib, 75% had sleep apnea, whether they were tired or not. So when you're looking at these things, you're kind of like, hey, you know, where where do we start and what what's the cause, right? Is it the sleep apnea that's the cause? Is it this that causes sleep apnea? But all of those things that you mentioned, the diabetes, the hypertension, like majority of it is, you know, disturbances in the endocrine system, right? So all of these things are linked to hormones, right? And the major controller of hormones is good sleep, right? So during the day, you're awake, you have hunger, you have tiredness, like you have all these systems that are running in your body. And what happens when we get REM sleep is it's kind of like the time for your body to reset. And what we know is that obstructive sleep apnea because of just the me mechanism of it. So like you obstruct your airway, you can't breathe, your body then wakes you up. That disturbs the REM sleep, which then doesn't allow basically like the cleanup to happen in your brain and the reset of all the systems. So it's kind of like a computer, right? If you have a problem, like the first thing you do with any electronic device when you have a problem, you unplug it, right? But you can't unplug your brain. Like there's no reset like that. So, you know, if we constantly don't have the reset, we don't get the REM sleep or the amount of REM sleep that we need, all of these things are kind of like a cascade or the dominoes that just fall afterwards. Okay. That's a helpful overview. And then you are mentioning kind of chicken or egg are there, we know that there are things that, but like there are many things like you were mentioning that are correlated with OSA and that's kind of where the chicken egg, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the most obvious one is hypertension. I mean, you kind of mentioned like in your introduction, like, hey, how is dentists, do we broach this conversation? And it's just adding a question to your medical history, right? Making it part of your intake. Like we all know the big things to ask about medical history, the things that we need to make sure the patient doesn't have to proceed normally with dental treatment. But when we get into it, like if you're looking at the medical history and you see, oh, they have snoring. Oh, they also have hypertension. They're on more than one medication for their hypertension. That person like has like a 70% chance of having sleep apnea. So like knowing a few key facts makes it super easy, one as a hygienist and two as a dentist to notice small things that you're just like, oh, this might be an issue. I mean, the next thing, the honestly, the most the easiest way as dental professionals to look at this stuff is just have the patient open their mouth. Like you can see their airway, right? Or you can't. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have some pictures I could show. I just don't know how good that I wish I would have. Um, I wish I knew more about Zoom and I could screen share things. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, like, you, know, you, you do your exam, you have the person open their mouth. And if all you see is tongue, 
you know, and have anything else marked on their medical history, it's a good idea to say to the person, how are you sleeping? You know, and the most common thing is, well, I sleep fine, but my spouse or bed partner or significant other says that I have horrible snoring. You know, so it's just adding a couple of things and getting comfortable. It's like a reflex. You know, when you first started reviewing medical histories as a new provider, like you didn't know the questions to ask. And now like you see a couple of things checked and all of a sudden you start rattling things off. And that's what sleep apnea becomes the more you're aware of it. Right. I, I wanted to ask before we really um, get more specific about some oral things that we can look for. Um, is Has there anything that has been causatively linked to OSA? Like what comorbidities have been caused? Hypertension for sure. Hypertension is, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest one because with REM sleep and, um, you know, blood pressure, when you, the way that REM sleep works and, you know, uh, I'll just pause for a second and say, if you're interested in sleep, there's a great podcast, not to plug someone else's podcast, but um, Matthew Walker, he's a sleep researcher. He wrote a book and he did a podcast with Joe Rogan and it goes in depth and super interesting. And I was actually, you know, kind of like, oh, Joe Rogan, like, what am I going to learn from Joe Rogan? Wow. Joe Rogan knows how to ask questions and he's really interesting. So listen to that podcast. If you want to know, like exactly at nighttime, like what the, what the, the, the REM sleep does for you, but going back to it. So in the beginning of the night, you have less REM sleep as the night goes on, you have more REM sleep. And it's the amount of REM sleep at the end of the night that leads to what's called the morning dip in blood pressure that kind of gives you a set point for your day, right? So if you miss that REM sleep, you miss that morning dip, then all of a sudden you're starting the day with a higher blood pressure. Now imagine that happening consecutively over and over and over again. Like, you know, I I can't say 100% because I haven't read the research, but like it's a pretty good start of where high blood pressure comes from. You know, if you can't get the blood pressure down naturally and the near set point is higher and then it continues to get higher during the day, like there we have hypertension. Right. Okay. You know, and as far as AFib and things like, you know, like you said, cardiovascular is the big one because if the heart starts to malfunction, we get high blood pressure, your heart has to work harder, the muscles become weakened, then we get into the AFib discussion where things don't fire correctly. We've got you know, parts of the heart quivering when they should be pumping, you know, the nodes not giving the signals to the muscles to fire right. And, you know, basically that's what AFib is. So like I said, 75% of people with AFib, even if they don't know it, have sleep apnea. So, you know, there's a lot of research being done right now. And there's a lot of research to be done because it's like, hey, nobody really, nobody really knows. And sleep apnea has gone undiagnosed for so long. Like you said, like, nine percent of the population seven and nine have been diagnosed but you know the the studies out there show that over 50 percent of the population has some degree of sleep apnea right whether it's mild sleep apnea where they're only having a couple awakenings a night to the patients that we normally see which is moderate to severe to severe sleep apnea Mm -hmm. because they're actually being disturbed by it um you know nobody knows that but treating it definitely can, you know, it's like a preventative medicine can cut down on having these other long-term things happen. Right. So as clinicians and as hygienists, like I know I'll speak for myself. Some of the things that I look for in the chair are omega-shaped arches or V-shaped or, you know. Yeah, I have this. Palette. Yeah. Well, you talk about that. I'm going to put this close to my camera. If you can tell me if we can see it. You know, like there's a whole, and I can give you this if you have a way to put it. Yeah, up. let's let's put a link to that 
Yeah, we can put a link to this. Is. Yeah, we'll add a link to what Dr. W is showing right now. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can obviously pause and screenshot and do whatever you want to do. Is there, um, do you want to send me the link afterwards? Yeah, what sure. There are people I mean, it? we can just scan it and put it somewhere because I this is, um it was from a course that I went to. So I literally just took it out of a binder. Because that is what you're showing is a very helpful chair side guide. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the basic things we're looking for are large tonsils, large tongue, like Dr. Dudley was talking about, you know, the scores, the patient mouth breathing, is there evidence of mouth breathing? All right. Anterior gingivitis is a big one. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Can you refolar extraction? Say that again. Premolar extraction. Yeah. Yes. Anything that gives you less space for that tongue to be in. Right. Um, and you think about malampati, like what a malampati one, two, three, four looks like, because I think that it's a word that a lot of us have heard and there wasn't a lot of official education about it. I know that I didn't know what a malampati score was until I talked to you about sleep apnea and then Google and had to do additional research. So can you explain? Yeah. Malampati is basically like how much of the airway can you see? So a one is... I can see everything. We know those patients. You love those patients. It's like the alligator opening and you're like, wow, I can see all the way into your airway. And you know, the opposite of that is a four, which is like you open and they see tongue. The two and the three are in between. So one, you see everything. A two, you can see everything slightly obstructed. A three, you see just a skosh of the um, airway. And a four is like, you can't see anything. Right. You know, it's kind of, I call it, this is kind of, not good to say, but it's like the old man, you know, the the heavy set, like the, the main, the main person for sleep apnea in the past has been this idea that it's like the overweight middle-aged man where it's got a large neck, he's, you know, kind of stocky, extra weight in the belly, that kind of thing. I mean, what we're learning now is that even someone like me or you, like young fit females can also have sleep apnea. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know whether or not people who are younger and fit are they more likely to have like central sleep apnea, or is it obstructive and it's just for strength? Yeah. You know, the, the percentage wise, as far as central versus obstructive, you know, everyone probably has some degree of both. It tends to be heavier weighted as obstructive sleep apnea, because um, mm-hmm. central sleep apnea isn't super common, but um, it can happen. But I don't. My know. dad has it. My dad had central sleep apnea. That's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Let's talk about kind of patients and how this conversation might look chair side. So I know that in my experience, I've had patients get defensive um, because whenever I bring up the possibility of them having a sleep problem, mm-hmm. and I think that it's because they think it's so far removed from something they're expecting to talk about at the dentist. So it's almost like we catch them off guard and they're not what the problem really is or what the solution might be because it's not been a really relevant conversation in a dental setting. So how do you like to approach this topic with your patients? Yeah, I mean, I think the you're right. I mean, it's kind of like the, the why are you taking my blood pressure? I'm at the dentist, you know? Um, I had a professor in dental school that say, just remember, like, you're the dumb damn dentist. Like, just look at the teeth. And he was being funny because he, you know, he would always say like, make sure when you do your exam, you take the patient's glasses off. Like, what if you miss the melanoma? That's like right there. Right. So having the conversation basically just comes from a place of like, hey, there are some things on your medical history that we know that predispose you for certain things. This may be something that, you know, is kind of, you know, off the beaten path of what we normally discuss, but we just want to make you aware of it. 
And, you know, come from a place of, you know, we just care about you. We don't want anything bad to happen with you. Here's the information. And you do with it what you will, right? You want to investigate it. I'm here to help you. You don't want to investigate it. Hey, that's fine. But at least we talked about it, you know, and honestly, more people are receptive than not. And the ones that aren't, it's okay. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to catch every fish, right? And honestly, the biggest thing is just making people aware having them have it in the back of their mind, because I've had patients that came back to me later and have said, you know, I didn't really think about this, but then I went home and I asked my wife just out of curiosity. And then I actually went to the doctor and lo and behold, like, you know, this is a big problem where it's not a big problem, but I didn't realize my snoring bothered my wife and now I could fix it. You know, I'd much rather sleep together than be in the guest bedroom and that kind of thing. So coming at it just from a place of, hey, we noticed these things, like, you know, the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is try to make a doom and gloom situation out of it and make it a huge deal. You know, I had a the other day that came in from another dentist that said, well, they told me that if I didn't do something about this, I was going to die. And I said, yeah, well, we're all going to die, but what are you going to die from? And when are you going to die? Right? We do know that sleep apnea does shorten your lifespan. So the, the person is not wrong starting off with, you better treat this or you're going to die. I just think that's kind of like, it's not going to work with most of the patients that you want to be receptive to what you're saying. You know, hey, we can improve your quality of life is a better, you know, discussion of, you know, or we can improve your spouse's quality of life or if you're sleeping in the guest bedroom or, you know, and these are questions that come, you know, like I said, they come more naturally once you start talking to people, right? And it's the big thing of just being curious, like, hey, just wondering, like, do you have any issues sleeping? And sometimes the answer is no. Well, we notice these things. You want to check it out? Great. If you don't, you know, we're always here if you have more questions about it and leaving it at that, right? Because putting the idea out there and then giving them time to think about it is much better than trying to, you know, kind of hard sell them into like, I know you have a problem or because you really don't, right? You know, there's been people that I was sure had sleep apnea and their sleep study came back and it was just snoring. And, you know, but that's an awesome thing to figure out and help them solve too, because snoring you know we see all the memes of the husband or the wife with the pillow over their ears like <laughs> i know i i'm glad my husband doesn't snore because i could not i wouldn't be able to sleep if he did well you know my sleep history i can't sleep as it is i can't imagine having a snoring partner that well just like any type of disturbance like forget it like sleep is so important like i didn't realize until i started studying how important it actually is and not only for you for children for you know for adults, like it's just super, super, um, you know, I don't know if we want to say that, uh, that sleep apnea is the cause of these things, but lack of sleep, no matter which way it's happening, I think is a, is a huge cause of a lot of these issues, you know, and people lose sleep because of other reasons other than sleep apnea, anxiety, depression, insomnia, like there's tons of different things that can cause, cause these problems. Preaching of the choir. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You want to have the child, they know how sleep deprivation works. Like, yeah, nobody gets any rest. No, there you go. Hey, Bulletproof Hygienists. We are excited to announce our 2023 Bulletproof Summit. Mark the date on your calendar and block off patient care because we're going to be in Las Vegas, August 11th and 12th at the Wynn Hotel. Registration is live. Get all the details and jump on the early bird specials by going to bulletproofsummit.com. This is our opportunity to connect with you and your team in person and grow exponentially together. We promise you don't want to miss it and we can't wait to see you there. Sign up today. 
Um, so when is, this is something that I'm curious about, um, and, and I know some about it, but I want to hear kind of more specifically from you. When is an oral obstructive sleep apnea appliance indicated versus a CPAP or BiPAP or like who is a candidate for an oral yeah. So, you know, the gold standard for many years, because there weren't other options for treatment of sleep apnea was the CPAP. A BiPAP is just a CPAP that has the ability to auto-regulate its own pressure. Okay. Which means that, you know, every person is different and every breath is different. So a CPAP, let's talk about that. It's basically a bedside ventilator, right? And the initial ones were just set, you know, like you might imagine a hospital, like that ventilator, like pumping out, you know, breath each second, right? So um, treatment of sleep apnea, basically you do a, a in-lab study and they do what's called a split labs, split night study. So the first half of the night you're sleeping normally, they're gauging, do you have sleep apnea or not? If the answer is yes, then the second half of the night they put you on a CPAP and they try to figure out what pressure you need to set it at for it to work for you. Okay. Um, the newer machines are amazing because they can auto-regulate themselves and then each breath they're determining like, oh, I need like nine, nine pounds of pressure, I need 14, you know, and it's shown the higher the level of pressure, the less tolerant people are to CPAP. So one, who who can have a CPAP? Anyone can have a CPAP. Two, who can tolerate it? It depends on the patient. Okay. And when can you use an oral appliance? Like you mentioned, one, when a CPAP is not tolerated. Okay. And two, mild and moderate sleep apnea are treated just as well with an oral appliance as they are with a CPAP. So patient preference. Okay. So if a patient says, you know what, I get a lot of people say, I'm not doing that. I'm not wearing that. I can't get the mask to fit. The pressure is too high. Um, my wife said the noise of the machine is worse than my snoring. You know, that's kind of where we come into play. Um, but yeah, you can use sleep oral appliance to treat mild and moderate right off the bat. Now severe comes a little bit trickier because it doesn't treat it as well. Um, but in those cases, most of the time you can use combination therapy where you use an oral appliance with a CPAP and then it allows you to lower the pressure on the CPAP because if we can get the pressure down to a, a lower number, then people can tolerate the CPAP better. Got it. Okay. So can you elaborate on some of the OSA oral appliances? Or yeah, I have a bunch here. I kind of walk, us, walk us through what that looks like for the patient to like in regards to wearing the appliance and then deprogramming in the morning. Yeah. So basically an oral appliance, like you mentioned, it pulls on your lower jaw, bringing your tongue with it. Okay. So moves this whole, it's like, we've all taken CPR. So it's like a, a head tilt chin lift, right? So you're doing the chin lift part of it. So most appliances, this is one of them. You know, this one has a little strap on it. There's others that don't have, um, you know, there's, if you want to know what sleep appliances look like, it's going to be hard to see in this video, but type into Google, you know, um, oral appliance for sleep apnea and you hit the images and you will, there's over 500 FDA approved appliances to treat sleep apnea. So we've got these kind, this one has a little hinge on the side. I don't know if you can see that really well. Um, this one has a little strap, which I showed you before. These straps are changeable, which moves the advancement of the mandible a little bit further forward. And then my favorite appliance, which I won't say the name of it, but I love this company so much, mostly because of, you know, the advances in dentistry and digital workflow. Okay, this one that's got these little posts on the side, they have little numbers on them, makes it super easy for the patient. Um, you know, these hinge ones are difficult because they come with a tiny screwdriver and most of these people we're treating are older and, um, you know, manual dexterity is not their strong suit. Um, but yeah, so what what this does is basically you've got a top tray and a bottom tray. Um, we 
do a special bite um, chair side that allows us to put you in a set position. And then each of these moves you forward a millimeter or each strap you change moves forward more so that we can get the tongue and the soft palate off of each other, which is the primary cause of the obstruction, right? Um, you know, the, the, the wearing of these is pretty easy. Um, you know, these newer companies, everything's digital, everything's milled. Um, so it's super easy to get a well-fitting appliance. And then, yeah, like you mentioned in the morning, you have to go and basically wring out the fluid in the joint that we let accumulate. Because if you move your lower jaw forward, right? So they're like this, we can generate space here in the joint. That joint fills with fluid. And in the morning, you basically have to bite to wring out that fluid. So we make a little, like you said, a little appliance in the front. It's called a morning repositioner, okay? Mm -hmm. And that allows you to make sure your back teeth are touching because the major um, side effects of treatment with an oral appliance are position of front teeth, change in those position. They can be, the, the, the top teeth get pushed in, the bottom teeth get pulled out. We can have some spacing develop. And then also changes in bite if people don't do the exercises in the morning, right? Because if you're moving this forward, you're not pushing it back. You know, it's like any other, you know, biological part of you that you're like, putting in a weird position, like soon enough, it's going to get more used to being in that spot and kind of get stuck, so to speak. Right. But it's easy to avoid some of those common problems in the morning with the exercises. Gotcha. And thank you so much for bringing those devices for us. If you um, are not watching on YouTube, you can see what Dr. W just showed and kind of explained, walked us through um, via YouTube. Um, I know that you've done a lot of work to form alliances and a good relationship with a local ENT, and we use Dr. Brogner, I know, and he's great. Mm -hmm. um, do you, like, how would you recommend a hygienist or a dentist looking for a good sleep apnea evaluating doctor or sleep apnea? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the or, thing about sleep about. apnea um, is that there are people that specialize in it. And just like dentistry, like, you know, as a dentist, I can take teeth out, I can do scaling your root plane, I can do crowns, fillings, full mouth, like whatever you're comfortable with, right? So doctors are the same thing. So first, I always talk to the patient, you know, is this something you think your primary care doctor could handle for you? Because if they already have a connection with the doctor, ordering a sleep test at this point, because most aren't done in lab, like most medical insurances at this point require, before we pay for an in-lab study, you need to do a home one first. Okay. So most sleep tests that are being used to diagnose sleep apnea, which are pretty accurate, are home sleep tests. So if you think that you're, you could talk to your primary care, like if you have a visit coming up for your physical, great, have that conversation. If not, you know, it is a good idea to make alliances or, you know, have a good working relationship with someone that treats sleep. So we have a local ENT who's, he's double board certified. So he's certified in sleep medicine. He's certified in, or board certified in ENT. So he handles a lot of these cases because one, ENT, the airway, but also you could have a pulmonologist, you could have a general practitioner. My brother-in-law is a general practitioner. He's double board certified. He's actually triple board certified. But anyway, sleep, primary care, you know, like a lot of doctors have this certification. It's just how are they using it? Like my brother-in-law does very little sleep apnea. Dr. Bronner does a lot of sleep apnea. So partnering with someone, one, that you're comfortable with and two, that you can, you know, get to know their staff because a lot of these... The biggest stopgap in treatment of sleep apnea is getting the patient from one provider to another. Okay. The way that we eliminated that is Dr. Broder and I have a really good relationship. We both have our coordinators. Our coordinators send patients back and forth. So my coordinator, Janet, 
sends to his coordinator, Joanne, here's the people that we saw today that need your services. We've given them your card and they've agreed that we can send you their information. Please get them in for a consult. And the same comes for him. He says, you know, I saw Mrs. Smith. She doesn't want the CPAP. She'd rather have an oral appliance. Please call her and get her into your office, right? So the, the biggest thing I can say that makes the biggest difference is having, taking it away from the patient, okay? Mm-hmm. And having someone else be accountable because most patients I've seen a year ago and I say, oh, did you call the sleep specialist? Nope, I didn't. I say, okay, well, could I give them information, give them your information for them to call you? And the answer is almost always yes, right? Oh yeah, that would be great because it just, it slips my mind. Like we're all busy, right? We all have other things to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes there just aren't enough hours in the day. So if we have someone else helping out in that situation, it's helpful. But yeah, find a provider in your area, build a relationship with them and, um, you know, work it that way. I mean, in some states, dentists can do sleep tests. Um, if you need to know about that, the State Board of Dentistry is the best place to look for an answer on that. Um, in Florida, it's a gray area. Um, dentists are allowed. But, you know, they're also, you know, when you're treating sleep apnea, to to do it correctly, you also need the patient to see a physician and you should have a signed prescription from a physician. So, you know, I found that doing sleep tests myself doesn't really help me because I'm trying to get the patient to a physician after that. And it can be kind of troublesome with having someone in sign a prescription and then, you know, doctors saying, well, why didn't a dentist do a sleep study? You know, sometimes people are territorial. So I found it easier just to have a good relationship with the medical doctor and send people directly. Yeah. So you, you just started bringing up, I guess, what some of the roadblocks have been in this process of interdisciplinary relationship, like, are there any other roadblocks that you face? And can you kind of walk us through how you overcame any obstacles? Because I feel like this is where it gets very tricky. It is that conversion and relationship interspecialty, you know, plenary. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the biggest roadblock is just getting the patient to get the diagnostics done. Because in order to make a sleep appliance, you need a sleep study. You need to make sure you're treating the patient for what they have. Right. And you need a recent sleep study. So sometimes patients go, well, I had a sleep study 10 years ago. I still have sleep apnea. And I say, but, but where is your sleep apnea? Right. It's on a scale. Like sleep apnea starts at like what's called an AHI or an apnea hypopnea index of five. Right. So what's your number? And, and sleep apnea worsens as we get older. So if you had say moderate sleep apnea 10 years ago, the likelihood of it migrating towards severe is pretty great. So it's one of those things. So major thing, one, um, getting patients enrolled in treatment, getting them the sleep study. Once you have the sleep study, it's pretty easy making an appliance and things like that. But yeah, the biggest roadblock is just the patient enrollment at the beginning, getting them the test that you need to make sure you're treating them effectively. Um, You know, afterwards, the largest thing is patient compliance. And this is where patient selection comes into play. And this is not a new conversation because it's the same conversation we have for Invisalign, okay? Hey, we have it for PerioProtect. We have it for retainers. We have it for night guards. It's like, hey, we can make you this. However, if you don't wear it, it's not gonna work. You know, fortunately for me, by the time patients get, if they're being directly sent from the sleep specialist, which that's, you know, the other source of referrals. So some of the patients we get aren't our dental patients, right? They come straight from the ENT because 
the patient's dentist doesn't make a sleep appliance or doesn't know how to make a sleep appliance. So that's the easy part, you know, that the patient's already enrolled. They want the appliance. They want to wear it. They're here because most of the time it's like, hey, I don't want the CPAP or I've tried the CPAP. So this is my last choice before I have to go for a surgical procedure or an implanted device, which, you know, there are all those other options to treat sleep apnea. So um, patient enrollment number one, and then when you get the patient enrolled, hey, you have to wear this. And people say, well, how long do I wear this thing for? Like, when am I cured? And the answer is, you're not. You're not cured, right? There is no cure for sleep apnea. It's just like hypertension. It's just like diabetes. It's a chronic long-term disease that you manage. You don't cure it. Mm -hmm. So patient compliance on the back end um, and follow-up because People tend to get appliances and you say, hey, I need to see you twice a year just to make sure everything looks good. And if they're not your dental patient, um, they tend to forget and they fall off the radar and they come back, you know, either with something broken or, you know, something out or, you know, changes in in teeth. You know, the biggest thing with an oral appliance is make sure they've got all their dentistry done because these things aren't easy to retrofit. Like, yeah, you can hollow things out for crowns and stuff like that, but major restorative work, like you're starting over. Um, so those are the big things you need to, to look out for. But, you know, in reality, like patient selection is the key here. And if you get the right patients, the treatment of the sleep apnea is super easy. Got it. Is there anything else? I know that we've kind of run through a lot. We've given a lot of information. We've discussed a lot of ins and outs, problem solving. Is there anything else you think we should know as clinicians regarding how OSA impacts our patients, how we should educate them or how it should be treated that we didn't already cover? You know, uh, I really, I put, I tell a lot of people, honestly, to listen to that podcast that Joe Rogan did with Matthew okay. Walker. Okay. I can send you a link to that because, I mean, Matthew Walker, I, I wish I could meet him. Like, he's brilliant. Um, and also, he lays out these in his book, if you read it. Um, you'll be shocked. Like, I was shocked when I read it. Like, how many things are actually linked to sleep? So, it's kind of like taking a step back and talking to patients about, like, hey, like, snoring or sleep disturbances may seem like a small part of life, but they actually impact such a huge scope of things. Like it would be very beneficial for you to at least look into this. Right. Can you tell us what that book is called? Yeah. It's called Why We Sleep by Monty Walker. I wish I didn't have it downstairs. Um, and the great thing for us is that we live in this age of technology. So the book is really long and it's really great, but it goes into like great granular detail about clinical studies and things. But if you listen to the podcast, it's like the cliff notes, right? And it's it's very interesting. Like I think I've listened to it a couple of times just because each time you listen to it, you pick up a new nugget of something. But yeah, if people are resistant, just say, hey, like listen to this. You know, it's most people have a commute to work. Like just put this on one time and see, you know, and like just educate people, right? If, if we keep planting the seeds, eventually the tree will grow. So they'll come back to you. Um, I'm sorry, what else did you want to know about? Oh, that's okay. Anything that you want to leave us with? Any final, any, any information that we didn't cover that you think would be helpful for us? Yeah. I mean, if you're a dental hygienist or a dentist and you're interested in sleep apnea, I'd say um, the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine is a great resource. They have online learning Okay, as well as the mastery course, which is what I did. So to become a diplomat, it's like, you know, it's a process, but it was worth it. You know, I, like you said, if we're going to do dentistry, let's do it extremely well, right? So 
You don't have to become a diplomat to treat sleep apnea. It's not that complex. Okay. But the more, you know, the more education you have on it, the easier it becomes to discuss with patients. Okay. And the more you learn, the more passionate you become because you realize what a big untapped area of dentistry and medicine this actually is. And that, you know, I mean, I think in America, the most common thing is like people want the cure for things. But in reality, if we could prevent these things from happening to people, you know, if we could prevent the periodontal disease, if we can prevent the tooth loss, if we can prevent, like people are happier. So it's like saying, hey, you know, especially in the young, healthy people or the, you know, the the young moms that we see or people that just had kids and they're talking about, well, you know, this, you know, a pregnancy is actually a big, um, a big time in people's life where women end up with sleep apnea and pregnancy. And most of the time it's self-resolved, just like diabetes, but sometimes it doesn't. So these moms think like, my gosh, I'm exhausted because I just had a baby. Well, you're exhausted because you just had a baby. You're not getting sleep because the baby's waking you up, but the sleep you're getting is also not good sleep for you. You know, you're not getting the REM sleep, which is double whammy, right? So just, I would say learning more if you're interested, using the resources out there, um, the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine is a great resource. Like I said, online learning, they have their mastery courses, which I think since COVID, they're also offering um, virtual, um, which is a lot easier. Like when I did it, you had to fly to Chicago for um, for three weeks or something. It was crazy. But um, yeah, learn more about it. And the more you learn, the easier it becomes to discuss these things with patients. So it's just a reflex. You know, the beginning thing is like, hey, I don't want to be rejected. You know, people sometimes get angry, like you mentioned, but you just have to say, I'm trying to, you know, promote the best thing for the patient. If they're receptive to it, great. If they're not, at least I said something, you know, document your notes that you talked about it. And then the next time they come in, they might say something to you about it. They may say, hey, you mentioned this last time and I re- really didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it, but I'd like to know more about it because I did ask my wife or my partner and I am having issues sleeping and I would like to get more restful sleep. I mean, focusing on the quality of life improvements of people who are tired is really the biggest thing you can do because it getting restful sleep makes such a huge difference. You know, that I have a patient that said, you know, I don't know if the appliance you're making, like I can't tell how I'm sleeping at night, but I know I'm sleeping better because when I sit down to have lunch, I no longer fall asleep. Wow. Or a patient that said, I don't, I couldn't take my, I couldn't go on long drives. I couldn't drive more than an hour or two because I know I would fall asleep and it's dangerous. And she said, I don't fall asleep anymore when I'm driving. I mean, imagine like just the impacts of that, like someone not getting in a car accident, you know, those are the kind of things that you have to think about. Um, But yeah, it can be challenging to start off with, but, you know, dip your toe in the water, see how you like it. And it may not be for everybody. Yeah. I've, I've heard you say though to people who seem very resistant, like you tell them the things to look out for. And then there is like, this, they have a new level of awareness now. And then you yeah. have like full circle. A lot of things have come back and said, oh, you know what? Dr. Debbie mentioned this last visit, or you mentioned this last visit. And actually I noticed that I do snore or my husband or my partner said that I do have this issue or I, um, you know, stop breathing and wake myself up basically choking or, or I do kick my legs while I sleep. Like the thing right tell them to look out for, they they just become more aware of and they start looking for and then they realize, oh, I do have this issue maybe, you know, and we see all the signs and symptoms. So Right. Just putting it out there. Yeah. Saying to the person, you know, I know you you said you don't have an issue, but just, you know, ask your spouse when you get home, like putting the ball in their court, making them think about it, making them say, oh, do I have this? Am I experiencing this? Like 
some people said to me, listen, I didn't realize that not everyone needs to take a nap at two o'clock every day. Mm. I just thought that that's how life is, you know, like, no, you know, that's called that like afternoon slump. Like you had your caffeine in the morning, it woke you up, but by three o'clock you can't, you can't function like, oh, I need another cup of coffee or I need to, you know, lay down for a minute. Like that's not normal. Like you should be able to have a full battery for your whole day. Right. I think, I think another kind of key to this is asking questions a specific way. So like, instead of asking, do you snore? You know, asking them, does your bed partner tell you that you snore yeah. or ever told you that you snore? It's like the clenching and grinding thing. Like you don't ask a person if they clench because mm-hmm. they're asleep. Right. You know, right. like I'm seeing evidence of clenching and grinding. This is we're clenching and grinding. So I think a that we phrase the question or the statements makes a huge difference in their receptivity or their their ability to hear what we're saying. Yeah. Or just ask, like you said, asking them in a different way. You know, yeah. sometimes people don't want to be told, you know, or admit these things are embarrassing. I know for most women, you know, that I meet, they say, listen, I just, I, the last person I saw said, you're going to save my marriage. She said, my husband's had it with the snoring. This is going to save my marriage. And I thought, I really hope so. I'm like, you know, but hopefully it's just the snoring. I've had women say, I don't snore. I purr. Oh, okay. I like that's that. denial. I said, sure. I mean, whatever you call it. In your sleep, yes. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I don't think I could handle purring either. No. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, no. But listen, get curious. You know, that's the biggest thing. Get curious. Ask people lots of questions. The best way for any type of dental treatment to be accepted. Like, build a relationship with this person. Build some rapport. Ask them questions. Get them interested. Like I said, I tell a lot of people, like, hey, you know, you might not think that you have this, but if you're interested to learn more about sleep, listen to this podcast, you know, point them in different directions. Oh, you don't know if you snore. There's an app you can download. It's called, um, oh, gosh, I'll have to look it up and tell you to put it on later. But there's an app you can download that you put on your bedside table. Now it only works, obviously, if you have no pets in your room and all that kind of stuff, because pets, my dog snores, it's crazy. Um, pets and husbands and whatever, you know, it'll pick up all the noises. It doesn't discern like who it's coming from. But, you know, people say to me, well, I don't know if I snore, I sleep alone. You know, we give them the app, right? And also, you know, you can use that as far as device titration when you get into that point. But, um, you know, just like you said, making people aware, being interested in their well-being, you know, pointing out things that we might not notice, you know, um, is super beneficial because we have this depth of knowledge when it comes to oral hygiene and, you know, like maxillofacial structures and things like that. And, you know, I have the misconception that everyone has this knowledge, right? And everyone knows and everyone should know. And it's like, no, people don't know. Like, and sometimes people don't care, but sometimes people are really receptive and really do want to know, hey, what can I do? And we're coming into the time when, you know, the baby boomers, if they're not interested, like they're going to hasten their time on this earth. So like, see you later. But the millennial generation, they do want to focus on the quality of their life and the experiences that they have in it. And most of them are receptive to saying like, if there's something I can do that is going to prevent a problem later, they want to do it. So, you know, looking at that kind of generational thing, um, and say like, you know, targeting your audience, right? If we've got the the older people that are like, listen, you know, I, I've, I don't, you, we, you probably hear this all the time. Like, I don't know how many, I don't know if I'll schedule for six months. I don't know when I, if I'm going to be here. 
right? So that's not who we're looking at helping. Like we can mention it, but if they're going to blow us off, like, hey, I don't know if you're going to be here either. So, okay, great. Like, hopefully I'll see you. Um, but the younger generation, you know, the people in that subset, I think is a good good place to focus on. And honestly, women are more receptive than men, in my experience. All right. So focus on the young women. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what? It is nice, though, um, to hear something nice being said about millennials. So thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I'm technically on, on millennials. So. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, really appreciate your insight and expertise on this topic and you sharing your time with us. You're welcome. It's good to see you. And um, for our listeners, you know, don't forget our annual summit is approaching quickly. And this year it's going to be in Las Vegas at the Wynn Hotel on August 11th and 12th. So with this transformational experience, get ready to take ownership of your success and make some impactful change in your practices, culture, and profitability. If you would like more information on what this event is like, discount information on large teams, et cetera, so on and so forth, please go to bulletproofsummit.com and we are looking forward to seeing you there. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Bulletproof Hedging Podcast. We hope you've had as much fun as we have. Don't forget to click subscribe for a lot more where this came from. We appreciate your support and promise to keep the hygiene gems coming. Keep track of upcoming Bulletproof Hygiene events by visiting bulletproofhygiene.com or download the Mighty Networks app and search Bulletproof Hygiene to stay connected. We want to hear from you.